John chapter 17, the Gospel of John and chapter 17. You also have an outline in your bulletin uh, of the sermon today entitled The Greatest Prayer Ever Made. Uh, I'm going to be preaching on this over two weeks and you have the outline in your bulletin which will also double up as a fan for you with the heat. John chapter 17 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we bless your holy name. You are indeed righteous above all else, and before you we find ourselves unholy and unrighteous and in need of grace, even the grace of salvation, even the grace of eternal life. And so we appeal to you now for your grace, and we thank you for your grace in sending your Son to be the sacrifice on the cross for sinners such as us, to all who would believe in him, that we could be called children of the living God, that we could have eternal life and know you as Father, even through the Son and by your Holy Spirit. And so we come even now with our hands outstretched, even in terms of faith. We, we want to believe in increasing measure, so we ask for your Spirit to be poured out upon us this morning as the Word of God is preached, that we would see Christ and we would encounter Him, and that you would deal with souls here this morning. Pray, Father, for our church and for the many troubled hearts here today, for the many who need comfort, the comfort of your word, the comfort that comes by your Holy Spirit, the comfort of knowing you, the comfort that sympathizes in our weakness and calls us to holiness and sanctification of life. We do pray for those in government over us, even recognizing that you have sovereignly ordained that they be there. And we pray for righteous government. We pray that they would govern and judge with right judgment. And ultimately, we pray for their salvation, that we may all live peaceful lives. And finally, We pray, Father, for the preaching of the Word today. We think of Pastor Clint preaching down in Montana this morning at the church in Kalispell and ask that you would fill him with your spirit and bless the saints there. And the upcoming week of of, uh, Bible camp where he's teaching young people that you would bring salvation to the lost. 
and encourage the saints. And in it all, Lord, we pray for the preaching of your word in faithful churches throughout the world that the lost would be brought in and the saints will be gathered, that the Lamb would receive the full reward for his suffering. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I've quoted uh, these words from the late English preacher Leonard Ravenhall before I've quoted these words, and they're this. The Sunday morning meeting shows how popular your church is. The Sunday evening meeting shows how popular your pastor is, but the prayer meeting shows how popular God is. And I think there's a lot of truth to this, and I believe that this is the secret power as to why our church has been preserved and grown so much in the past couple of years, because our prayer meetings have grown in number and not only in number, but in fervency over that time as together we've sought the face of the living God and we've asked Him for mercy. But the prayer meeting is also a place where we really get to know each other intimately. Because at the prayer meeting, you're not speaking with each other. Instead, you get to overhear the heart of another person as they come to their heavenly Father and they pour out their heart and their deepest requests. So friends, it is the greatest privilege to hear one another's prayers. And those who have been attending our prayer meetings will certainly testify to the marvelous blessing this has been to our souls. It moves me to hear you pray. And often I'll, I'll speak to somebody after the prayer meeting who says that they felt strangely encouraged and warm in their heart. And here in John 17, we get to overhear, we get to eavesdrop and overhear Jesus pray the greatest prayer ever made. The greatest prayer ever made. Many have called this the most profound chapter in the Bible. Thomas Manton, who was Oliver Cromwell's private chaplain, delivered 45 sermons on this prayer. You will be thanking God there are only two from me, because I'm not as good a preacher as Manton. Philip Melanchthon, the co-reformer with Martin Luther, said of this, John 17, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. It is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. You may see it there entitled in your Bibles. From the 5th century onwards, approximately, that is how it's been known. Certainly, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the office of priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest on the Day of Atonement entered the Holy of Holies alone to make sacrifice and intercede for the people. And Jesus, as great high priest here, is about to consecrate himself, set himself apart and become the sacrificer, but also the sacrifice for his people. Because unlike the Old Testament priest, the, the high priest, the great high priest, Jesus is innocent. He doesn't need anyone to make sacrifice for his sin 
Instead, he sacrifices himself once for all so that no other priest or sacrifice is ever needed again. That's good news. So this prayer has been traditionally called Jesus' high priestly prayer, but it's also been called the farewell prayer. The farewell prayer is as Jesus gets ready to say goodbye to his friends, these friends on earth, and, and to return to his Father in heaven. If you like, this is the true Lord's Prayer. It is the true Lord's Prayer in the ultimate sense as Jesus carries the needs of his people to the Father's presence. The great high priest intercedes for us. And, and we need to remember here that this is not just what he did then. It's what he's doing now in what theologians call his heavenly session. When God said to, to David, sit at my, when he, through David, sit at my right hand in Psalm 110, he's saying, be seated in the highest place of authority in the universe. You see, Psalm 110 is a prophetic psalm, and David was saying by the Holy Spirit that when the Messiah had finished his labor in this world, he would be exalted to heaven and enthroned at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of the Father, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, the risen and ascended Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. What a thought that is, friends. What a thought that Jesus is praying for you right now. Right now. For you and for me. What a security that must bring you when you come today with your troubled heart, Jesus is praying for you right now. And this high priestly prayer is the forerunner of it all. Now this prayer comes at the end of, of what we call the farewell discourse, which begins by the Last Supper in chapter 13 of John, and then this prayer in 17 sort of caps it all off. And in verse 1 of Chapter 17, it says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, these words, referring back to the previous chapters, where he has spoken to his closest friends, these disciples, these ones whom he's loved to the end. And he speaks to them in order to encourage them, to encourage them not to have troubled hearts in the face of his departure and in the face of the persecution that will come their way but instead to be empowered by the Helper, the Holy Spirit who's coming. He's going to send them the Holy Spirit, and they will bear fruit as they abide in Christ, and they will witness to the world. And he's spoken these words, and now he turns from talking to his disciples to talking to his Father. John Calvin, Pastor Josh has already mentioned him this morning, he tells us this on, and commentating on this verse, and this is instruction for all preachers. He says, Jesus takes to himself to prayer, takes himself to prayer, because doctrine has no power unless efficacy be imparted to it from above. It wasn't enough to bring the truth and teach his disciples. He now cries out to God that this truth will be made effective and inscribed on their hearts. You see, prayer is at the very heart of the work of God, friends. 
It's not an add-on. It's not a last resort. It's at the heart of the work of God. And so, having taught his disciples, he now turns to prayer. It says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus goes heavenward. He enters the Holy of Holies. And and we need to take off our shoes here, friends, because as we listen to Jesus, we stand on holy ground. We're eavesdropping on the incarnate second person of the Trinity speaking to the first person of the Trinity. And we need reverence in the way we listen. Robert Murray McShane famously said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. In prayer, we reveal our deepest longings and our ultimate priorities. It is the most intimate thing. It has been said that the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, reveal Jesus in his body. But the Gospel of John reveals his soul. He reveals his soul. And here we have Jesus bearing his soul to his Father. We're given holy revelation, listening to the Son of God on his knees before his Father in heaven revealing his deepest desires as he's about to approach the ultimate and unimaginable agony of the cross. If you knew that you were about to face an overwhelming agony, something that would engulf you, how would you pray? How would you pray? What will settle your troubled heart here today? Will it will be found in lifting up your eyes because the answers to our deepest troubles on earth will never be found on earth. The answers will be found in heaven and your Father who waits to hear your prayers and delights to answer them. So Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed. The full prayer splits very easily into three sections. First, Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 to 5. Next, he prays for his disciples, that is, for those, he says in verse 6, look down at verse 6, for those whom you gave me out of the world, that's the disciples. And thirdly, he prays for all believers, that is, the church universal. He asks in verse 20, for those who will believe in me. And this, friends, includes us in that prayer. I'm going to deal with the first five verses today and then the rest next week. And in these verses, in these prayers of Jesus, these first few verses, we see first, Jesus' darkest hour, second, Jesus' supreme desire, and third, Jesus' gracious gift. First, Jesus' darkest hour, second, Jesus' supreme desire, and third, Jesus' gracious gift. He says, he prays, Father, the hour has come. If you know John's Gospel, you'll know that this hour has been mentioned by Jesus several times before, but in the sense that it had not yet come. It was not yet the hour. In chapter 2 and at the wedding feast in Cana, he tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. Again in chapter 7, when his brothers are urging him to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, he says, my hour has not yet come, but now, 
now in the context of another feast, the Lord's Supper in chapter 13, the hour has come. This is business. This is business between him and his father. Jesus has patiently waited. Pastor Clint's spoken about waiting on the Lord. He's, he's patiently waited upon God's timing. And now the hour, the hour set in eternity past, the hour on which the whole of human history would hinge, that hour has come. It is the hour of the cross. And our Lord is vocalizing to his Father, yes, Father, this is it. This is what I've been sent for. I am ready. I'm ready to do your will. Ready to fulfill the scriptures that promise the Messiah in the prophets and in the Psalms, but all the way back to the very first promise in Genesis 3 of one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. But even to fulfill an hour appointed before time began, when in the eternal counsel of the unified Godhead, the Father chose in the Son those for whom the incarnate Son would be the sin-bearing sacrifice on the cross in time and space. And so our minds are stretched across time even as we consider the hour. And yet this hour is also Jesus' darkest hour. The forces of evil are conspiring against him. Satan is in open conflict and has even entered into Judas, it says, in order that he would become Christ's betrayer. The chief priests and the Pharisees want to kill him. The Romans will be ready to oblige. Whoa, what a dark hour this is. Jesus, the only innocent man who ever lived, will be put on trial before the world and pronounced as guilty and sentenced to death and slain on a cross. He's about to do battle with Satan and sin and death at Calvary. What a darkness surrounds our Lord in this hour. But what makes the hour most dark, friends, is the prospect of receiving the wrath of his Father in the place of the sinners that he will save. The Son of God who never, never for a moment knew his Father's displeasure because he never sinned. This Son of God will, will suffer that displeasure for sins, against the sins, for the sins of millions who deserve it. That's the impending darkness that most grieves him in this hour. So that the darkness of the hour will be revealed in the dereliction of his cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus knows the hour is divinely appointed. He says in chapter 12, for this purpose I have come to this hour. And so he takes confidence in God's sovereign purposes in appointing the hour, and he takes to prayer. Jesus' obedience to the divine will of God is such that even the suffering of the darkest hour that God appoints cannot keep him from prayer. What dark hour are you facing today, this week, upcoming in the months ahead? Remember that the Lord sovereignly appoints it. So go to him in prayer. Jesus doesn't say, I'm too busy to pray in this dark hour. My problems are too dark 
in this hour for me to pray. My relations are, are grieving me too much. Judas is betraying me. Peter will deny me. My disciples will scatter. And the devil is attacking me in this dark hour. I can't set my mind on profound and high things in, in prayer. No. It's the very fact that his father has appointed the darkest hour that causes him to lift up his eyes to heaven and to see beyond the darkest hour and look to his father in heaven. It is, is the very thing he needs. Jesus meets his greatest crisis in prayer and he embraces it instead of running from it. And this is what we need. This is what we need to pray in submission to our Father's sovereign will as we face our greatest sufferings. And so, in His darkest hour, our Lord goes to His Father in prayer and He reveals His supreme desire. He looks beyond that darkest hour and to His supreme concern. And it is one thing above all else, brothers and sisters. One thing. It is the glory of God. That is Jesus' supreme desire. We see it in verse 1. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. We see it again in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And we see it again in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory, five times there. The glory of God is clearly the main theme of the prayer. And it is Jesus' supreme desire. Of course, Jesus is, is clearly conscious of his own deity here. But in seeking to be glorified himself, he ultimately seeks his Father's glory. Why? Because Jesus is equal with the Father in his deity. I and the Father are one, he says. And Jesus' glory is, is something he shared with his Father from eternity. So when Jesus is glorified, it reflects to his Father. And even as we consider this, friends, we've got to travel back. We've got to do a little bit of time traveling back to John chapter 1 and verse 1 and into eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before the world began, the Word already was. Now the Word is revealed to us in the flesh as Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. He is the only Son from the Father. Yet, the Word, before He was made flesh, is co-eternal with God the Father. And He was with God the Father, not in so much the sense of, of being next to Him, but being face to face with Him in filial love, Son to Father towards him, if you like, uh, directly looking at him in intimate fellowship. Remember what God said to Moses? No man can look at me and live. In Exodus 33. But Jesus can look directly at the glory of God because he is God. Even God the Son who shared the glory of God with the Father from eternity. 
But what is the glory of God? Well, in short, the glory of God is the outward shining of his inward being. That's a good way to remember it. The glory of God is the outward shining of his inward being. Now, the word for glory in the Old Testament is kavod. It means heavy. It means weighty, uh, significant. It, a man who had many possessions displayed his honor and splendor. He had a weight of possessions. He had kavod. Kavod. A man who had kavod had a weight of moral character displayed in a gravitas that made him significant when he spoke, for instance. And you know those people. It's not about shouting. It's about having a, a weight, a significance, that when that person speaks, something worthy is coming out of their mouths. In the New Testament, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that the woman is the glory of the man in marriage. So he's referring back to the creation order and, 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 and Eve being taken from Adam, the man, and for the man. And then in the marriage relationship, she is the glory of the man. So when you see a wife of beauty and of wisdom, you are meant to think, he must be some guy that married her. She reflects glory to her husband. The Proverbs 31 woman is such a woman of, of, of substance that her husband is known at the gates. He has reputation because even of the way she is as a wife. And so the glory of God is the outward expression of all of his holy attributes which shows his weight and worth. Remember Isaiah, the famous verse in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole full earth is full of his, and you think it would say holiness, but he says glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. So when God's holiness is shown publicly, that is his glory. The outward shining of his inward worth. So the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. Creation around us today speaks to us constantly of his wisdom and power and goodness. Man created male and female in the image of God is meant to glorify God, to image forth something about God in the way that we relate to him and the way that we represent him and the way that we even live male and female in his image. That is why any assault on manhood and womanhood and biblical sexuality is an assault of the glory of God. It's a glory of God issue. Isaiah says, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Of course, you'll remember in the Old Testament, in Exodus, we see the cloud, don't we? The Shekinah glory of God descend upon the tabernacle, that tent of meeting where God met with his people. And now Jesus descends to earth as the incarnate son and he tabernacles among men. The word become flesh 
and the glory of God shines most brightly. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. But our Lord's glory was veiled in His earthly ministry. Oh, we see glimpses of it in His healings and and casting out of demons and calming of storms and turning water into wine and multiplying bread and fishes to feed thousands. And we even see in the transfiguration a, a small window to view His glory more clearly. But still, it is veiled. His taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us means his, his glory is being ve- veiled to some extent. Imagine what it cost Jesus to come down here. Imagine what it cost. Imagine the glory he had with the Father from all eternity. From all eternity, that perfect joy and, and radiant love and holiness and perfection Now imagine being born into this world. Whoosh comes down, subject to sinful people and the effects of fallenness and all of Satan's advances all around. Imagine the assault on Jesus' divine sensibilities in such a toxic atmosphere. Imagine that. I'm still, well, I'm old enough to remember, as some of you will be, those days where you used to fly on an aeroplane and they'd have the smoking section at the back by the toilets. People could go and have a puff of a cigarette and you'd be sitting down the middle or towards the front and the air would be fine and you'd go to the back and you could hardly breathe. Jesus, like... like Being on the top of a mountain, breathing pristine, pure air, and descending into a room full of smokers where the air is acrid and poisonous. Imagine what that did to Jesus. Imagine the dull ache of homesickness in Jesus' chest as he dwelt on earth. That longing to be back with the Father and share the glory he had from eternity past. See what it cost Jesus. You see, we tend to focus on the cross, and rightly so. But what about the cost of the incarnation? And so Jesus prays, Father, show my glory. Reveal my glory by the Holy Spirit so that they'll be able to see my worth in what I came to do. And do it so you would be glorified. And then return me to your presence, to your bosom as it were, to the way it was before the beginning. Father, I love you above all else. And I want to come home. I want to come home. But how will the the Father's glory be revealed in the Son being glorified? Well, it's in the cross of Christ. That's where God's glory is most clearly seen, where it shines most brightly. It's where God's mercy and His justice meet. As God the Son exhausts the wrath of God the Father in the place of sinners like us. And in doing so, he pays the price for our redemption and frees us to receive forgiveness and stand guilt-free before God, not as slaves, but as sons. So when God looks at the cross, he sees you punished in Christ 
And when He looks at you, He sees Christ covering you. God's glory shines most brightly in the cross of Christ, friends. Put another way, God's glory shines most brightly in the completion of the mission that God the Father gives God the Son. Just watch the wording there in verse 1 and then in verse 4. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since, there's the reason, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The mission of the Son from the Father is to give eternal life to sinners by his work on the cross. And then Jesus says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Even though he must still endure the cross ahead, Jesus speaks in his, in his heart and mind as if it's good, as good as done. I've accomplished it. Nothing's going to deflect him. The Greek word used here for accomplished is actually virtually the same as the word he cries out on the cross when he says, it is finished. Christ is vocalizing to his Father in prayer the victory cry of the cross. On the cross, there he will hang, our Lord. Our Lord will hang. A crown of thorns in his head and arms nailed above his head in apparent defeat. But in spiritual reality, friends, his arms are above his head like a victorious athlete. And he is saying, it is finished. I have won. Now give me that victory wreath. Mission accomplished, Father. Satan is disarmed. Sin is defeated. Death is about to be vanquished and sinners are saved. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, God is most glorified in the salvation of sinners at Calvary. That's where his glory shines brightest. So that the cross, a place of shame, becomes the cross, a place of glory. And the darkest hour becomes the means to a bright eternity for believers who will forever behold the glory of God. But not only does the Son glorify the Father and the Father glorify the Son on the cross, the Son returns to the glory He shared with His Father by way of the cross. There's no way back to the Father but by way of the cross. Because when the Father raises the Son from the dead and when He returns Him home as Jesus ascends in triumph, the Father is affirming His Son's accomplished work. And when Jesus returns once more from heaven to judge the living and the dead, and he will, the Son will glorify the Father by presenting to him a resurrected and glorified people as he brings that saving work through heaven's gates one last time. That's us. I have to ask, friends, is the glory of God your supreme desire? Do you pray that way? Father, be glorified in your Son through my sufferings such that Jesus be glorified in me. Be glorified in all my relationships. Be glorified in all my decisions. A lot of people, when they're making decisions, they, they ask these kind of questions. Well, how can I do it 
so that it's not sin? And I want to say, you're asking the wrong question. You want to say, how can God most be glorified by what I'm doing? Be glorified, Father, in this church through the salvation of the lost. Are you praying as you come to church on a Sunday, Lord, if there is someone here who does not know you, someone here who is under your wrath, who if they die today will remain under that wrath from eternity, Lord, save them. And I do not assume that everyone in here is saved. Is that your supreme desire? Be glorified. This is Jesus' supreme passion, the glory of God, and and we're swept up in it, you see, such that Jesus can pray in verse 10, I'm glorified in them. And that's why the answer to the catechism question, what is the chief end of man, can only be, and you know the answer, it can only be to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, 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 life, eternal life. That is what Jesus gives. He is the gracious giver of life. And so we move from Jesus' deepest desire, his supreme desire to Jesus' gracious gift as we close. He says in verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. A lot of giving going on here. It's not from us, it's from God the Father and God the Son. Jesus gives eternal life to those the Father gives him. What does that mean? Salvation is a gift. Salvation is by grace alone. You cannot merit it. You cannot merit salvation. He gives. But it is not just a possible salvation for a hypothetical group of people. It is a definite salvation for all that the Father gives the Son. If He gives them to the Son, they're going to be saved. On the cross, Jesus then wins that salvation for every single one whom the Father gives Him and who will therefore believe. It's not that our belief completes our salvation, but that Christ has secured our salvation on the cross. When the Son cries, it is finished, He's writing across the hearts of all the Father has given Him. He's writing across the hearts of all the saints, saved by sovereign grace, forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, and not one of you will be lost. And I have done it on the cross. It is finished. But not everyone is given. It means that Jesus lays His life down for the sheep, not everyone. It also means that only through Jesus might anyone be saved. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusively through Jesus Christ, open to the nations. So your salvation from start to finish depends on God's giving. Or we could say it depends on, as we often say, sovereign grace. The Father gives gifts to the Son. The Son and the Father are glorified as the Son secures salvation on the cross for us, and then the Son is glorified in us. And when you understand that, 
When you understand that you have done nothing to earn eternal life, then you can truly say, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. And all this means that we get eternal life. What is that? What is eternal life? Well, it is to know God. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the point of life, friends. It's the essence of being a Christian. Define a Christian. A Christian is someone who knows God. That is a Christian. As someone who knows God, not just things about him, not just theology. Eternal life is not also mainly about the quantity of life, but the quality of life. The thought of an endless existence would be pretty tiring unless it meant being in fellowship with the triune God in perfect joy, peace, happiness, glory. Eternal life means knowing God experientially, relationally, as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Knowledge of God is, is not what we have by nature. It is what we receive by faith when we are born again and become children of the living God. And if you are here today, if you're here today and you don't know God, it is a tragedy. It's a tragedy because it's what you're made for. It's what you're made for, to know God. And you're looking around and you're looking for knowledge and all these other things and experience and all of these other things. You're made to know Him, the one in whom you can find true joy and see true glory. Everyone's seeking glory for themselves. Looking inwards. We need to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And even if you become in here years, your outward profession isn't a guarantee that you know Him. Jesus says to the Jews in John 8, you neither know neither me nor my Father, and they were professing. But do you believe in Christ? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you put your trust in Christ alone as Savior and Lord? Has the Holy Spirit changed your heart so that you cry out, Abba, Father, in prayer? Do you desire in increasing measure to obey God's Word? Do you love other Christians? If it's yes, the answer is yes to that. You could be confident that the Father has given you to the Son and the Son has given you eternal life and that you know Him by sovereign grace. It's an amazing thing, and we're going to close now. It's an amazing thing. In the darkest hour and on the hinge of history, you would think that Jesus would be praying to the Father to comfort Him, but instead He seeks the glory of God and within that, you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about you and me. This prayer, if you like, has been answered in us. In us. In God's glory being revealed in the salvation of sinners like us. Given by the Father. Secured by the Son. Loved from eternity past. Have you ever thought about being loved like that? Loved from eternity past. He's not going to stop loving you tomorrow. Or when that suffering comes your way. He's loved you from eternity past. And so, we eavesdrop here on the beginning of the greatest prayer ever made. And we hear Jesus say, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I want to come home, Father. 
I've loved them to the end, even with the love that you've loved me. And the father says, yes. You're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Come home. Come home. The second person of the Trinity praying to the first person of the Trinity about his deepest longings, and you and I are on his heart. Could there be any greater comfort than that today? Let not your hearts be troubled, friends. If Jesus prays for you, it will end well for you, and the Holy Spirit will empower you to persevere all the way home. Father, I pray now, even as we meet with you through the Son and by your Spirit, that this would be a moment where we'll be changed. Changed as we behold the glory of God. We behold the glory of God and even in our darkest hours, we know the love of God and we know his glory displayed in the salvation of sinners. And as we live this life, we can know we have eternal life now and start experiencing it now and look forward to heaven to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.